Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com bookstacked. That's audibletrial.com bookstacked. everyone. Welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. My name is Chelsea Regan. I'm a feature writer at Bookstack. And today I'm very excited to be talking to Anna Mariano about her new book, This Is How We Fly. We'll be talking about everything from how to play the very real sport of Quidditch to how to make fairy tales relevant in a contemporary novel. So without much further ado, here we go. Hey, Anna. Thanks so much for being with us today. So excited to talk to you about your book. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So let's jump right in. Uh, to start off, can you tell everyone a little about yourself and about your new book? Sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm Anna Mariano. I'm the author of the Love Sugar Magic series, uh, which is a middle grade fantasy series, a little different than my new upcoming book, This Is How We Fly, uh, which is the Quidditch contemporary YA novel uh, that also steals a little bit from uh, the Cinderella stories that we all know and love. Uh, the book is about Ellen, who has just graduated, well, Ellen Lopez-Rourke, who has just graduated from high school. Um, in the first scene, she's, in fact, deciding not to attend her graduation because her family isn't going to go. And that's sort of what she does this summer between high school and college. It's a coming-of-age story, which sometimes I make fun of and say that that means that plot is optional. Uh, it's more about the character growth and development, but it really follows her journey of joining this Quidditch team, making friends and sort of like readjusting some of her current friendships and kind of realizing that she can can imagine herself in the future. You know, she's been kind of afraid to like, not sure how she's going to fit into the world as an adult or as a, I guess, younger adult or older teen. And so the book kind of goes through all of that. She has some romances. Some of them are short, but still important. <laughs> and she has a lot of friendship drama and a lot of family drama um, with her stepmom. And that is my very bad summary of the book. <laughs> you crushed it, exactly. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more, because I have to admit, before reading your book, I definitely fell into the camp of people who didn't understand that Quidditch was a serious sport that people play. <laughs> And so I think there are probably a lot of people out there who only know sort of the magical version of it. I was hoping you could give sort of a brief explanation of the sport of Quidditch and sort of how it's played. I get this question a lot, obviously, because I do really play Quidditch in real life. So the sport, we're actually just celebrating the, the 15th anniversary of Quidditch as a real-life muggle sport. The game was founded at Middlebury College in Vermont 
Um, one of the founders, at least Alex Benefi, I don't know if he was the sole founder or if he was with a group, um, but he's still very involved. He's still kind of like is in touch with the U.S. Quidditch organization, uh, the National Governing Board. And I guess it was a group of friends who just were like, hey, we should like do something quirky on the quad uh, in that kind of very college way. And they decided to play Quidditch, and they invented a set of rules, originally not necessarily thinking it was going to be very athletic, uh, wearing capes, which is a, uh, to quote Edna Mode, not a good idea, no capes. They were, you know, kind of like inventing rules as they went along. And then it kind of got popular. They started inviting, like, other colleges to come and play with them. They developed a World Cup that was not a World Cup. It was just a, like, Northeastern United States Cup. And eventually it grew, and eventually we finally separated, like, U.S. nationals from the real World Cup. Uh, so we're very proud of that. Like, it's gotten to be a little bit of a definitely niche sport, but, like, a real international sport. So to play the game, it's kind of, when we try to describe it to especially people who are looking to watch it, it's kind of a game of rugby with a game of dodgeball going on in the middle. And after about the first 20 minutes, a game of maybe like wrestling or like the flag part of flag football comes in uh, and happens on pitch also. So it's a lot of chaos. There are, you know, multiple different positions like there are in the, the magical version. Quaffle players are the ones who are playing rugby, the keepers and the chasers. Keepers, I know in the magical version of the sport, are a little more goalies. Like they're just, I think that in British soccer terminology, the keeper is just the goalie, right? But in in Quidditch, keeper has really evolved into a position that is more offensive as well. The keeper has certain like things they can do when they're guarding their own hoops, and they're often like the tallest player on the team so that they can block that tall hoop in the middle, but they also run a lot of offensive plays, and they're not necessarily just hanging back the way that a goalie does in soccer. Um, So the keepers and the chasers, they sort of like push forward uh, Quaffle is a slightly deflated volleyball. It's slightly deflated so that people can hold on to it with one hand because, as I should have probably mentioned first thing, your other hand is busy holding a broom. <laughs> so they try to put that deflated volleyball through one of the three hoops. There are three hoops of different sizes, or rather different heights. You can tackle. It is a full contact sport. So that's where the more rugby side of things comes in. And the other part of the game is the beaters, and there's, you know, two on each team, and there's only three bludgers, which is a little bit of a change from the magical sport as well. Um, Rather than two flying balls that you kind of direct on your own, it's three balls, playground balls or dodgeballs, basically, like the kind of rubbery ones. You just throw them at people like dodgeball. Beaters are mostly trying to tag out quaffle players. They might tag out each other as well, but they're mostly trying to tag out the other teams awful players by throwing the ball at them, hitting them. And then the last part is the seeker game, the snitch game. And instead of a magical flying tiny uh, winged ball, the basic idea is a tube sock tucked inside the back of someone's pants with a tennis ball inside. And that is attached to what we call the snitch runner, who is a person. (laughs) They are not. They don't play for either team. They play for basically their own selves. A lot of snitches play for their pride, <laughs> to see how long they can keep running around without getting caught. Um, so they're kind of their own little team and their own little entity, which adds another again chaotic kind of fun quirky part to the game. And they also can either try to outrun or try to kind of out wrestle the seekers. 
what you described there really well too, and that you described really well in the book is that it is a very athletic and physical sport, sort of in the manifestation that it is now, and and that you described. Um, something I really liked in your book that you talked about was how Ellen didn't see herself as athletic before Quidditch. She really found a specific sport that worked for her, and then she. Like, that's how she found her own power in her body and her own sort of athletic ability. I know for me personally, I really related to that. I um was yeah. also one of those kids who was like, I'm not athletic at all. And then when I became an adult, I was like, I should do something and started running. And it was something oh, that cool. if you had told me to go run, I would have been like, no. But because <laughs> it was something that was coming from me and was something I enjoyed, I was able to really get into it and started doing races and half marathons and things like that. I was wondering if that's um, something you share with Ellen as well, that idea that like Quidditch was the the physical activity or the athletic activity that really brought you in. Yeah, I think that, so I maybe played it up with Ellen a little bit. I think that I was maybe just a little more into sports as a concept as a kid. I really, really loved basketball. My elementary school did like a giant school-wide basketball tournament. Um, and so like as a, as a young kid, I was actually, I, I wasn't good at it. I was very small and not very powerful. And it took me until like fifth grade to be able to make a basket. Um, but I think that was something that Ellen uh, and I shared. But I really cared a lot. I, I was great on defense and I like would not give up. Um, because I, I had that like competitive or sort of like sports jockey vibe. But then I hit middle school and I really lost that. I really wasn't, didn't feel super encouraged to play sports. I, you know, tried to continue on my like YMCA basketball, uh, summer league that I had done when I was maybe 11 or 12 and they were co-ed and it was really fun. Um, when I turned 13 and tried to join a co-ed league, I got a lot of like very strange looks. I'm like, why are you here? Again, because I was small and not very, not like didn't look very powerful. And so I just sort of dropped it. And I just, I think also in middle school and high school, there's a lot more pressure to like pick a subcategory, uh, pick a cafeteria table. And I was like very clearly a nerd. So I didn't hang out with the jocks. I didn't think of myself as a jock. And so I sort of just got out of the habit of thinking of myself as athletic or competitive or caring not competitive, but sports competitive, or any of that. And Quidditch, which I didn't really start playing until kind of late college, was this really great reminder of like, oh yeah, I've been missing this. And then like Ellen, I also felt like maybe as I got more into Quidditch, I realized that I had, you know, while not having the body type that people normally look at and are like, ooh, what an athlete, I have this ability to like, still make plays or still, you know, figure out something that I'm trying to do or not be a useless dead weight on my team. <laughs> and that's important too. It's one of those really important messages that I definitely got from your book and I think is really important for especially people like sort of ending high school, starting college of like try new things, try mm -hmm. athletic activities you might not have thought of because you might find the thing that works for you and that really like helps you get back into that. Because, yeah. yeah, I think we also, we push kids towards, like, certain sports. I think it was really great in your book at one point. Her dad was like, well, maybe you'll try soccer because now you're athletic. And she was like, I don't really want to try it. Like, I'm happy with the thing I'm doing now. And so, actually, I wanted to ask you, too, about sort of about the Quidditch community. Something I noticed in reading your book is that Quidditch seemed really 
sort of not separate, but sort of a different thing than the what I would expect of like the Harry Potter fandom, which was a little surprising because I kind of assumed they'd be the same thing. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and, and your experience in those sort of two different areas. So again, I think this is something that has evolved as the sport evolved. Um, there definitely was more overlap in the kind of early years of Quidditch. Um, and a lot of the, I think, older Quidditch media, things like documentaries or news stories, ones that are a little older, still showcase a lot of the Harry Potter um, fandom culture and I think do try to make that connection. And Quidditch has sort of been moving in, in a different direction. Um, partially just because it is a full contact, all gender sport that is around in a lot of colleges or in a lot of cities that recruits like kind of young adults. Um, and that's just appealing to anyone. <laughs> like that's appealing to a lot of people, a lot of people who maybe either weren't into sports and are suddenly like, oh, this sounds fun, or people who were really into sports and are like, okay, well, I'm obviously not going the professional route, but I still want to have fun and I want to stay active. Maybe I find something a little less uh, hardcore. <laughs> not, uh, not that Quidditch can't be very hardcore, and people who come from you know, Texas football sometimes want it to be more hardcore, but I think some people come because it's like a little bit more fun and a little bit more like, a social club as well as a sport to play. And then, of course, being gender inclusive is a huge draw, I think. I feel like Quidditch has been really great about including, representing, even in like the high levels of our leadership, queer and trans players throughout its history. And I think that that is another thing that is like drawing people in that, um, unfortunately, now that's even more diverging with like traditional Harry Potter fandom because J.K. Rowling is being terrible and uh, putting out transphobic, like, hate speech in her new books. And it's just, like, kind of a problem. But, like, so, yeah, so I think we're drawing people from other sources than just the people who are diehard Harry Potter fans who maybe in some cases were the foundation of the sport, the people who had, like, the giant collections and who ran um, LeakyCon or, like, are in wizard rock groups or um, that sort of thing. Maybe they were the place where we started, um, but now they are definitely not the only demographic we have in the Quidditch community. And so there's been a little bit, it becomes more of its own subculture and not as connected with those other things. I feel like there's some tension in the community because of that. Like some people want it to stay more whimsical. Whimsy is like a big buzzword for certain groups of like, no, keep the whimsy. And then there's some groups that are like, we're going to the Olympics. Like we're going to make this a serious sport. Blah. And or like we're going to get on television. And so if we want to be on television, these are the rules we have to like we have to make our games a little more. And we're like, we do that or we could just continue having fun. Um, so there's like I think there's very valid arguments on both sides. Quidditch definitely, especially now that J.K. Rowling has gone kind of off the rails a little bit um, as far as like alienating her fan base. I think we could benefit from saying we're not with her, <laughs> but also at the end of the day, you are playing a sport that was invented based on a children's fantasy novel. Maybe don't take yourself so, so, so seriously. And maybe that's good because, you know, sports culture can be toxic. And if we can keep ourselves a little separate from that toxic sports culture and remember that we're here to have fun and we're here to, like, hang out and and keep a little bit of that, I think that it can be good even if you're going to be competitive and even if you're going to play at a high level. You 
did a really nice job in the book of showing both of those sides, that there were definitely characters who were more like, I played football in Texas and wanted something else where I could get physical. Then there were characters who were really into sort of that whimsy. But really, it did feel something separate from Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. They were all talking about which house they'd be in or like all the time. It was really its own thing that these guys were doing that was brought out of this thing that so many of us love and enjoy, but has now become something different. And I think it's nice to like has its own leadership that can say like, no, we are um, gender inclusive and we are inclusive of everybody. Everybody is welcome here. Um, and I think yeah. that shows that there's like a nicer side to that too. If, if that's something you, you want to pursue and enjoy. Absolutely. We've got a lot more to talk about with Anna and we'll continue catching up with her right after this break. Come right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Looking for something to listen to after this podcast is over? We always suggest reading a book. And what better way to consume books than with Audible? In the subway or in the car, when you're mowing the lawn or doing dishes, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. You can always catch up on your TBR list with an audiobook. And for listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download when you sign up for a 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash bookstack. Audible selections includes books like Victoria Aveyard's Red Queen series, and Tomi Ediemi's Children of Blood and Bone. Again, go to audibletrial.com slash bookstack for your free audiobook. And don't forget that even if you quit the trial, you get to keep the book. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit more, as much as I loved the Quidditch and could definitely keep talking about it <laughs> forever because I found it so interesting. I was hoping we could also talk a little bit more about the story elements, um, specifically the more Cinderella elements, which I thought was really an interesting combination with Quidditch. I was wondering how you kind of put those two elements together, or what kind of inspired you to combine those two things. Yeah, um, I have lots of answers to this question. I'm not sure which one is like the true answer. I think it's a little combination of all. Um, one thing is that I just really like fairy tale retellings. It's just like, like if you tell me that a book is a fairy tale retelling, I'm gonna reach for it because I'm like, ooh. Part of that is like, just because there have been so many and I like so many of them. You know, Ellen Enchanted, one of my favorite books. All of the, I can't remember the name of the series now, but it was like a a bunch of twisted fairy tale retellings that was coming out when I was a teen. Um, some of the contemporary retellings, like all of those books are things that I love. Anna Marie McLemore now is a writer who's writing a lot of uh, fairy tale retellings. So that, all of those books are books that I like, I'm really into. I actually, this wasn't my first contemporary Houston book with a fairy tale <laughs> plot. When I was kind of like in college and, and early grad school, I was working on a Rapunzel retelling, but I keep thinking someday I'll go back and revisit it. But it's kind of that like Druid novel. And when I was writing that novel, I got a lot of questions about like, well, why is it 
like you're writing and you know some of this was from people who were very into literary fiction not so into the YA world some of the questions were like your writing is good why are you making it a fairy tale uh, which is obviously not what we want to hear but like I, I really got I faced a lot of that confusion and a little bit with this book too where people were like well it seems like you already have like a developed character a developed contemporary thing going on why the fairy tale and so I think part of it is that like plot is hard for me I'm much better at developing uh, characters and like situations and writing a lot of dialogue and actually pushing the story forward is a little bit tricky <laughs> um, so having a fairy tale plot to kind of hang my hat on you know like the skeleton outline helps me helps me drive the story forward and helps me say okay Whatever else happens, we got to get ourselves to a ball, to a tournament. Um, in my, my current work in progress is Snow White Marching Band story. And it's kind of the same thing where I'm like, okay, well, I can get as bogged down in, in the fun little scenes between all the characters, but at some point we got to get our three times that the Wicked Witch comes in and bullies the main character. Like, this is happening. I guess that's part of why. Another reason is that I actually came up with this, the idea for this story while I was watching Cinderella on Broadway. I had, you know, I was living in New York for a short period of time doing grad school, um, and my friend and I got, like, excited because Carly Rae Jepsen was supposed to be playing Cinderella, but then, like, she, her understudy was there. <laughs> Whatever, it was still really good. And we went and saw it, and I was watching that, like, you know, the old Rodgers and Hammerstein version where she... Uh, where Cinderella sings about, like, escaping from her house with books. And I got this sort of idea of, like, oh, that's, like, the equivalent today of being, like, stuck in your house with your dumb parents and, you like, being on your phone all the time. And also that Cinderella has, like, these little moments of political activism or, like, you know, pushing the pushing for a different kind of government or pushing for rights for different people. And that's kind of, you know, you see that in other Cinderella retellings. So, like, I got this idea of, of this character who's going to be, you know, stuck at home, often on her phone or on the Internet, or, like, basically just trying to escape from her frustrations. And then, like, I was like, oh, yeah, and she has to be, like, a friend to the animals. So she's vegan, yes! And she started to come together as this, like, you know, this very kind of, no, vegan feminist, on, very online character. So all those things kind of working together were the reason that I wanted to make it a fairy tale uh, retelling. And then I just enjoy putting in the little the little um, sprinklings of, I guess, the Easter eggs. You know, the fact that John shows up in the car and she's like, oh, your car is orange? I didn't notice that. <laughs> Which, like, doesn't matter. It does not matter to the story. It doesn't matter to the plot. But it's an, in, it's an Easter egg of the Cinderella thing. It also gave me some challenges. Like, I realized as I started writing a Cinderella story that Cinderella doesn't really meet the prince until the very end of the story. Like, that's once she meets him, it's basically over. So that's why some of the romance things kind of, the romance beats hit different than I think a lot of people were expecting when they read the book. I like that, personally, um, because it makes the romance, like, a little bit of a smaller, it takes a backseat to Ellen's development and like some of the friendships that are going on and it gave you know gave her a chance to have some other romances before that but it is kind of weird to try and do a happily ever after-ish moment with someone that she has met and like 
hooked up with as like kind of a one night stand, which is what Cinderella is. But like, it was a little weird to write and kind of fun to write. So some challenges, some some uh, help for me with my plot, and then also I just like when I envisioned the character, I was I was in that headspace of like what would Cinderella look like now. You created sort of this character in Ellen who is going through all this, sort of figuring out who she is and what she thinks. She is sort of dealing with issues of gender inequality and identity and, like you said, protecting the environment. And something I really liked is that you made it so that the conflict between her and her parents wasn't sort of this arbitrary black and white issue of, like, good versus evil or her stepmother's just being mean for no apparent reason. You made it much more contemporary in the idea that it's, like, rooted in this generational divide where it's, like, she's of the generation that's, like, we have to do something about this because it's not getting better. And her parents are more of the generation that are, like, if you just ignore it, you can pretend it's not a problem <laughs> and we can all pretend every we can all, like, live in a fairy tale where things are okay and this isn't going to happen. I really sort of enjoyed yeah. the modernization. Oh, what? <laughs> I'm so mad now that I didn't use that one. That was brilliant. <laughs> oh, no, happy to help. But I and I also really enjoyed that you created this character in Ellen where like you said like the romance kind of doesn't hit till the end and she doesn't end with any answers. There's no like and she figured out exactly who she is. Thanks Quidditch, we're done. <laughs> like she just kind of was coming into her own and and still figuring it out and went to college like you do and still kind of keep going. I was wondering sort of why you sort of took that approach with Ellen's personal journey that there wasn't some sort of conclusion. Um, it felt like it just sort of wrapped up her summer rather than like wrapping up who she is the way I think a lot of books sometimes try to do. Yeah. Um, so I think some of that was happened organically because these like things that were happening with Ellen's identity were things that were coming up as I was writing and were not necessarily what I thought I wanted to be writing about. Um, and so when people pointed them out and when I realized that it was something that I needed to, like, basically I got to a point where, especially with the, some of the gender stuff, people were like, I don't get it, cut it. And I was like, no, I'm not going to cut this thing that feels very important and I want to put it in. And so if I'm not going to cut it, then I need to commit and I need to, like, make it a little bit more part of the story. But I still didn't want to, like, cut it off or make it a a main plot line because I already had my main plot line. <laughs> I mean, part of it was laziness. I already had written the novel. Um, I already had my plot lines, but also because, like, especially for my own, like, experiences in the Quidditch community, Quidditch is, because it's this very inclusive space, it is a place for people to explore and experiment and find out that these things are okay. I know lots of people whose gender identities changed over time in the Quidditch community, and that was just, you know, and that's just how we all go. And, you know, these are people who are like, it's a very small community, so we know them. So we'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, this person, who's that person? Oh, you may have known them under a different name, but this is their name now. Like, no, not a big deal. Or like, oh, yeah, um, that person, the, the roster here, we have, don't worry about it, we have all our non-male players on. Like, it's okay, we're keeping track of it. And so, I don't know, it was just very fun to write that for for Ellen, and I know there's another character, like a minor character, that is identifying as non-binary, but wasn't in an earlier, you know, some of the characters say, like, oh yeah, well, that 
this is like a new development or like we're, we're just learning about it. And so Ellen hears that and is like, oh, okay, cool. Interesting. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's something that some reviewers have not totally gotten or totally understood or totally loved because it is up in the air. Um, and I feel a little weird sometimes about marketing it as like, this book has a non-cis main character because I don't know that in the book Ellen would say that. I think she would still be kind of on the fence there. Um, and I don't want people to be disappointed in thinking that they're going to get like very out and proud representation when it's really more questioning representation. Um, but like, I would not say that Ellen is cis <laughs> also. So, yeah. And then other characters as well. I mean, I think there's a lot of characters who are transitioning. I, some, some obvious ones in their, like, who they are, how they're seen. And I just think that's a very realistic thing, especially for, <clears throat> sorry, especially for teens now, but also teens any time at any point in their lives. I mean, in any point in history, like, teenagerness is just means that you're, like, growing your identity. Especially kids, like, going to college, that the age at which you're supposed to have it, like, quote, all figured out and know exactly who you are and exactly what you want has become, like, younger and younger for some reason. It's like we expect by earlier and earlier stages people are going to be like, this is who I am. And I really liked that because I think that line that you said about how Ellen is says, like, I'll figure it out when I figure the rest of my life out is so true when it's like, I'll start doing that thing later. Like, I'll just figure that part out later. It doesn't need to happen right now. I think it's just really true of everyone's life and everything that we're all trying to figure out. And I liked that component, that it wasn't like, I know exactly what's going on. It was like, I have no clue who I'm 18 and haven't figured this out yet. And no, I think there's absolutely. a lot of, you know, there are people who are earlier and earlier finding words to like express what they feel about their identities, which is awesome. And we should definitely support that. But it's like, you know, some people, especially if, especially, and sorry, Ellen, I put you in a household that's not super open. <laughs> um, especially if you're in a household that is not super open to that, like, it might take you longer, and that's, again, super valid, um, sometimes a safety thing for your own self. Like, I know there are people who maybe don't think about or identify those parts of themselves kind of out of a safety issue. Like, yeah. The idea that there isn't a right, a correct timeline. Mm -hmm. Like, however it works out for you is the right for you. And yeah. there, there shouldn't be any sort of expectation on, on exactly when anyone figures that out. Um, I was actually hoping you could talk a little bit more about developing the characters of the parents, because I thought that, like I said, I think that's such an interesting idea that it's really this generational issue where they just kind of don't understand why she's so impassioned about these things. And I also think you created sort of a really nice nuance of, like, they're not evil, they just make mistakes like humans do, and they're not perfect, um, and they're sort of I think the dad at one point even says, like, I don't know what I'm doing either. Like, I'm figuring this out with you. And I really liked that element of sort of evil stepmother. It's more like, nah, mm -hmm. they're all just figuring it out. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about sort of developing those two characters and sort of where that came from. Yes. So I think both the parents and especially that kind of the kind of final scene with the parents were some of the things I was working on till the very end because they weren't quite hitting right. I did have the idea from the beginning that one of the main sources of conflict would be that that the stepmother, Connie, was maybe trying to do this sort of respectability politics thing or trying to kind of say, like, I want you to be 
normal because that's a way to stay safe and that Ellen was going to not get that. Like I knew from an early, early draft that Ellen was going to completely not understand that and think that she just hate was hated while from the stepmom's point of view, she was, you know, basically doing like tough love or like I'm hard on you because you need to learn these things. And that developed and I had a really great, just a friend who is a beta reader of mine uh, who kind of said like, you know, it's kind of funny because all the things Ellen is concerned about are things that Connie has probably experienced in real life. Like, like she's a, you know, she's an immigrant. She's trying to like get her daughter into like, you know, certain schools. Like she's probably experiencing all of this stuff firsthand. And you would think that Ellen would notice that. And I was like, you would think that Ellen never did. And also I didn't. Um, so <laughs> being able to play that up a little felt very realistic also because I do have, you know, family members who maybe kind of are in that place or like, I, you know, my entire Mexican-American side of my family, like, doesn't super, super speak Spanish partially because of these decisions that are like these calculated decisions that had to be made of like, you know, do you want to be able to like, do you want the teachers in school to be punishing you for speaking Spanish on the playground? Or do you want to be like, do you want them to be liking you because you're a great English speaker? Um, unfortunately, like we had, like there were decisions like that that had to be made. And also other reasons, you know, like I'm not saying that it was all driven by that. But this like idea of basically kind of assimilating or trying to be as apolitical and, and, and uh, I don't know, like non, non-offensive as possible as a safety thing. Um, something that I really liked putting, I liked giving Connie that reasoning or like that reason for being the way that she is. And even like, you know, she says some things that are not great about, about some of the queer characters or about like this idea of being a little, uh, not conventional. And it's always this like, well, it just sounds like you would have a hard life, which is a very frustrating thing to hear. We've had discussions, uh, some Quidditch friends of mine have sat around and talked about, like, how many of you have had the your parents think you're gay conversation? It was every single hand was up. It's a very frustrating conversation to have when, when somebody is like, you know, I just want you to have the best life ever, which to me means being, like, exactly this kind of thing. And you're like, okay, I don't, that's not necessarily what is the best life to me, or, like, why does it have to be this way? Um, I feel like I've gotten into generalities, and I started losing the thread a little bit. but. That's kind of, that's Connie in, in a nutshell, is that she is trying to maybe teach Ellen a lesson for her own good, but the lesson she's trying to teach is not a lesson that I think Ellen necessarily needs to learn. Um, it's just that they have different views on how they're going to get through life. And then, and then the dad, I drew a lot on the, the Into the Woods Cinderella dad, who's like, I think he's just constantly drunk, and he's just basically being dragged along. And Ellen's dad does not have, like, an addiction problem, but he has this sort of, like, bumbling, and I think that's a very common, like, stereotype, is, like, this kind of bumbling dad character. And in his case, it's actually really harmful. And I think that Ellen really loves him, and he really loves Ellen, and so it's hard for her to recognize how harmful it is that her dad is not being more involved or is not making the decisions about parenting or is just kind of saying, oh, well, I don't know, figure it out. Something I really appreciated is, like you said, it's like they both had 
reasons for where they were coming from and you could understand them. But you also kind of pointed out, like, just because there are reasons, it doesn't mean it's okay. And it doesn't mean it's not harmful to Ellen. And I think to it just lets sort of everyone know if you're in that situation, you're not. Because I feel like she really blames herself for so much of the book for thinking that what's going on is her fault. And it's like, no, you're just in a situation that's really unfortunate and you're dealing with these things that I think a lot of younger people deal with. I also thought it was really interesting how you switched the, I feel like usually it's the teenager who's like, I got to get out of the house, got to go to college. And this time the parents were like, it'll be better when you're in college. It'll be better when you're out of the house. I was like, that's so heartbreakingly reflective of, I think, real life situations where it's like not just the kid ready to go, but the parents are like, maybe this will be better once we have some distance. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's one last thing that I think is so great about Cinderella, and another reason why it's like a cool fairy tale that people keep retelling, is it's one of the only models that I know of, at least. I'm sure there are others. Like, I'm not I'm not that smart about craft, and other people are much smarter. It's one of the only models I know of where you can write a protagonist who is right. Um, and, you know, like, there's the Captain America quote of, like, you know, if the whole world's wrong and you're right. It might not be a Captain America quote. I learned it from Captain America. <laughs> if the whole world is wrong and you're right, like plant yourself and be right. Oftentimes we can't do that with protagonists. Oftentimes we have to give our protagonists a big mistake and they have to learn. And Cinderella is kind of like, no, you were doing okay. You're okay. And the world will figure it out. And so I think that's sometimes, you know, not that we don't love to see protagonists who are like, not that, okay, Ellen is very flawed and she has things to learn, but maybe those foundational things, the things that are hurting her the most are things that she doesn't have to take on and she doesn't have to feel like they're her fault. And that, I think that's a cool message. And I think it's cool that we have a fairy tale that sort of says that about, especially about like femme protagonists, like you're okay, you're doing okay. And all of these, all of these things that are happening to you are not your fault. At the end of the book, where I was just like, I want to give her a hug and be like, "You're doing great. You're doing so good. Don't worry about it. It's gonna be. You're amazing." Um, no, that's that's perfect, and that's that's sort of the perfect way to um. And I wanted to ask, uh, is there sort of anything else you'd like to say or or talk about or anything else you want to kind of add? So the book comes out December fifteenth. On December twentieth, I'll be having a launch party live stream. Unfortunately, because of COVID, but actually kind of fortunately because of COVID, we've gotten more into virtual events, which makes them more accessible to a lot of people. Um, so I'll be doing a whole live stream. There's going to be panels with Quidditch players talking about Quidditch, authors talking about author stuff. Um, you can check out like my Twitter or my website, AnnaMariano.com, to find out more about that. Yeah, and where um, can they find yeah. you on Twitter and social media? Yes, Twitter, I'm at... Anna M is boring. I apologize. I made the Twitter in 2009, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. I don't really have Instagram yet. I keep thinking I'm going to make one, or like I'm going to publicize the one that I have. But I have an, a website, AnnaMariano.com, um, where you can get like you know some information about the books, pre-order links. Um, there's a whole page about the This Is How We Fly launch. So, yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today, Anna. It was really, really great to talk to you. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I love thinking kind of deeply about, like, oh, why did I do those things? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. And thanks so much to all of you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at bookmarkedya. 
can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you liked the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Chelsea Regan 17 We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.